Amen. Right on. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Hey, wasn't last week awesome? We had church in the park. That was like our best outdoor service ever. That was awesome. Annie and Fab got baptized. Really cool. Right on. Hey, there is a principle in discipleship that I want to explain to you as we come to this text. Uh, the navigators have this old, this old principle, and um, they're a discipleship group that Billy Graham commissioned way back in the day. And I love their stuff. If you hang out with me, you know I, know I love the navigator stuff. And I know many of you have probably seen this, but I, I didn't put it on a slide for you. But one of the illustrations they use is describing the Christian life. And they take a wheel and they say, this is the Christian life. And they break it down into kind of six essential parts. The first being the hub, the center of the wheel, the, the access point on which everything turns. And they say this. Jesus Christ is the center. Jesus is to be the center of the Christian life. Everything spins and turns and revolves around Jesus Christ. Then they move to the outer rim of the wheel and they say this. The outer rim is a picture of the Christian life in motion. And Christian life, when it's in motion and when you're serving God, your relationship with God is expressed in this way. It's expressed in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Love expresses itself in obedience. And so they say, when your life is in motion and you're serving Jesus, there will be obedience to Jesus. Now, before you get to that rim, they say this, that there's four spokes, four spokes that are vital and they're important to every Christian life. Every Christian needs to have them. And they're crucial that these four areas be healthy in your life for you to grow. Firstly, they say this. There's two vertical spokes. You know what they are? Come on, you, some of you disciples. What are they? Word. The word and prayer. and prayer. Two vertical spokes. They're vertical spokes that, uh, are, that define our relationship with God and how we communicate with God. Firstly, God speaks to us through his word. And then secondly, we learn to speak back to God, to close the circle of communication with God through prayer. And so God speaks to us through his word, and we speak back to him through the practice of prayer. Those are the vertical spokes. Then they say, well, in the Christian life, we love God and we love others. So there's horizontal spokes. How do we relate to those who don't know Jesus? And they say the spoke is this. It's we witness to them. We tell them our testimony. We tell them the story of the gospel. And then the other spoke is how we relate to believers. We have with believers fellowship. We share our lives together. We gather with one another and we worship. And we use that word, what we call our small groups here at CTK. Koinonia, right? Fellowship groups. Fellowship groups. This text kind of, um, or really does, revolve around the concept of fellowship this morning as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I would say this, that experiencing Christian fellowship, um, koinonia, is one of the great blessings of being a believer. You know, I, I really hope that you were looking forward to church today before you came. Were you looking forward to church? I hope you were. 
Good. Amen. I hope you were looking forward to church for two reasons. I hope you were looking forward to, to church because you, you came with a heart to worship Jesus. I want to connect with the God that I serve. So I'm looking forward to church. But I also hope you were looking forward to church because you were looking forward to being with like-minded people who also wanted to worship Jesus. You were looking forward to, to fellowship and being a part of the family of God and being with people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, for some, maybe all week long uh, in your home or in the workplace, you were surrounded by people who didn't know Jesus. And so sometimes coming and being with the church um, is like experiencing a place of refuge, a place of shelter, a place of family, a place where we can gather together and worship, share our lives, be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, find encouragement, um, be loved, find acceptance as we are. You know, fellowship is so important that Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, a new command I give you, that you love one another. By this, all, or sorry, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so, our fellowship and our love for one another is really important for our spiritual health. And it is also really important, based on the words of Jesus, as a part of our witness to the community. As part of our testimony as the church. It's important both for our spiritual health and it's important for our witness to the community. Satan loves to destroy fellowship. Each of us know too many people that have allowed themselves to be casualties of church wars. Each of us knows uh, too many people, uh, too many examples of people who just didn't feel that the experience of being together with the body of Christ was important enough to them, uh, important for their spiritual health. And so they, they made a decision to stop fellowshipping with God's people. Now in Corinth... This church, as we've been seeing through this series, is a carnal church. They're a, a church that has been invaded by the culture around them. And there was an issue arising in the church that was affecting their sense of fellowship, their experience of fellowship. And so they asked Paul about it. They've been asking Paul questions. For a number of weeks, we dealt with questions surrounding uh, marriage that they asked Paul about. And now, uh, Paul begins to address this next question and I would say this, on, on, a, on a certain level, if we were to take a quick uh, glance at this question and this discussion, we might think, seriously, that's your problem? It's a very first century problem. But the principles that Paul shares in response are awesome and they should be applied to all of us. And we need to keep them in mind as we fellowship to get with one another. So let's check it out here. Verse 1, he says this, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So here's the issue that was going on. It was, effect it was a diet issue. 
We know uh, and we understand, I guess, this on a certain term because diet and, um, you know, the importance of diet and eating habits is, you know, all the rage in our culture, right? My wife's been doing the whole 30. You know what that is? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, it's this. For 30 days, she adjusted some of her eating habits with the intention of just changing lifestyle. So went to Whole Foods and not processed stuff. And for 30 days, um, she was sticking to this diet. And she says, I want you to do this with me. So, you know, oh, okay, fine. Twist my arm. I'll do the thing. It's your thing. I'm not really into it. But, you know, she does the bulk of the cooking around our house. And so I guess I'm in, whether I like it or not. So um, I wasn't totally convinced, but I thought I'd give it a try. So the first morning, we head out, and uh, we, had to, we, we, were, we were heading off to go see someone. And so we went to grab a coffee, and I went in to use the washroom. And when I came out of the washroom, Lisa had her coffee already, and she said, here, taste this. And so I took her coffee, and I took a sip, and I said, ah, that's disgusting. It's black. Why would you drink your coffee black? Now, I know some of you guys like your coffee that way, but... Not me. She says, you can't have any dairy for 30 days. I said, whoa, 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 hold on here. <laughs> you mean not even in my coffee? We can't like just squeak that rule, a little bit of cream or a little bit of, you know, 1% in the coffee? She says, nope, no dairy for 30 days. And I said, I'm out. I am out. And so, you know, before we started, I was out and my wife's almost completed, but the, the eating of meat was an issue of division in the, in the church in Corinth, and here's why. In the city of Corinth, you had two options for, for uh, purchasing your meat. You could go to the butcher and go to the local market, and you could pay a top price to buy your meat, or your second option was this. You could go and visit one of the pagan temples... And you could purchase your meat at a fraction of the cost at one of their temples or at one of the little booths they might have had outside their temple. And in fact, much of the time, the meat that was being sold from the temples was typically better quality. So here's how it would work. This is where this meat would come from. A pagan worshiper, a worshiper of a false god, would bring their animal sacrifice to be offered to the idol at a various temple. The meat would be offered. The priest would take a portion of the meat for himself and for his family. And then most of the sacrifice was left over because stone idols don't eat meat. <laughs> it was just a waste. And so... The priest would take his portion and typically whatever was left um, would be taken and it would be sold outside the temple and it became a means for the temple to, to make money. And like I said, you know, typically it was pretty good quality because um, in theory, people brought their best sacrifice to offer to their God that was really no God at all. And so imagine for a moment... You come to church in Corinth, you gather with people on Sunday morning, you're new to the church, and some nice family introduces themselves to you, and they invite you over for lunch, a family barbecue that afternoon. They say, uh, you know, 
We've got some really nice steaks. You got to come over. You're going to love it. Bring a salad. We'll see you an hour after church. And so you think, wow, these people are great. Your church, they're so warm, so welcoming. And instantly, you know, you, you feel loved. And you head over for the meal. You eat the barbecue and it's first class. And uh, the new folks... Uh, you say to the new folks, you know, tell me, where did you get this great meat? And he says, man, if you just go down the street from our place, there's this spot where you can pick it up dirt cheap. It's really good for our family budget. We just go to the idol temple, the temple of whoever, and we buy our meat there. Best cuts, cheapest prices. <laughs> Sounds like a deal, right? Well, when the guest hears that, maybe... They're rocked in their own heart because they love Jesus. Their conscience is torn over the fact that this is food that's been offered to an idol. Um, maybe their conscience is torn because before they met Jesus, they used to worship that idol and go to that very place and offer sacrifices themselves. And when Christ set them free from the bondage of idolatry, when Christ set them free from sin and they found life in the person of Jesus Christ and freedom from pagan worship, they said, I never want anything to do with that ever again. I don't want to go to that place. I don't want to associate with that place. I don't want anything to do with that place. And now here's this believer in the home of another believer and they've just fed him food uh, that was offered to that idol that he felt totally uncomfortable with. So I hope you could you get the picture why there was division happening in the church. For some, they said, it's a deal. I'll buy the cheap meat. For others said, well, this is an issue of conscience for me. I cannot eat it. It's been offered uh, to an idol. And it was affecting their fellowship. You know, some people felt that they had freedom in Christ to eat meat. And besides, you know, like I said, good for the budget. Others felt Jesus had given them freedom from idolatry and they wanted nothing to do with the old life. And so the church was divided and they asked Paul to help them with some clarity on the issue. Now, there's issues like this for us in the church today. There's lots of them. You know, sometimes we just sort of live oblivious to them or we don't think about them. One that I think of is the issue of alcohol. Uh, Christians consuming alcohol. Uh, there was a, a few years back, we went to our Northwest Pastors Conference in, in Seattle. And um, one of the highlights, uh, and, and you guys who were at the men's conference uh, with us a few weeks back uh, saw this and experienced. One of the fun highlights is we always have a panel discussion and people can throw in questions. And there's a panel and they bat around the issue. And so it was a pastor's conference and one of the young pastors Threw in, a, threw in a question about the consumption of alcohol. Um, and um, it was amazing to hear how polarized the room became. How people jumped to either side of the fence. And, and division happened along generational lines. Division happened uh, along pe people's personal backgrounds before Christ. Division happened on all sorts of... Uh, things uh, and, and, and issues surrounding that. And, you know, I know that if we had a conversation this morning about this, the room would divide. 
Why? Because there are many here that Jesus has brought freedom from alcoholism. Or there was alcoholism in their family and, and the pain that they experienced because of it or, be, or that they witnessed because of it or that they personally had because of it has caused them to commit to never touch a drop. They don't want anything to do with it. And that's fair and that's good and that's where their conscience has them. Others never had that struggle surrounding alcohol. They can have a drink, they can do it in moderation, and it's not an issue for them. And the scripture's not clear. It's not black and white. Except that it says this, drunkenness is forbidden. Now for the Corinthians, meat, it's not an essential issue. This isn't the deity of Jesus. This isn't the discussion about the cross. It's not about the sinfulness of the human. This is not an essential issue. It's something that's peripheral. The eating of meat that was sacrificed to an idol. What do we do and how do we handle this as the church? And so Paul says this. All of us possess knowledge. There's general knowledge regarding meat and regarding faith. And whatever side of the fence you fall on that you might be coming from, you can probably share your knowledge and defend your conclusion. And Paul says this, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I love that. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Look, there's always potential for division. Like I said, Satan loves division. And this church, I would say, for the most part, knew that an idol was nothing, that an idol is nothing. Nothing more than just the false image of a God that existed in the darkened mind of these pagan worshipers. There's no God behind the idol. There's only one God. Even the very presence of the idol in that temple is no proof that the God exists except in the darkened minds of those who worshiped it. Paul's actually going to go on and talk about this in a couple more chapters. And he's going to say that, that behind the worship of idols is actually the worship of demons. And so the logical conclusion of the believer who, who bought meat from the idol temple was to say, a non-existent God can't contaminate food offered on his, on his altar. And that person could logically argue their point of view and say, it's a good deal. I'm going to eat it. They could take their knowledge, use their logic, and they could use it as a weapon to fight with rather than a tool to build someone up with. And that's how knowledge is. I mean, depending on how we use knowledge, knowledge puffs up. And when it puffs up, it cannot build up. It cannot edify someone else. You know, it's been well said that a know-it-all attitude is only the evidence of ignorance. A know-it-all attitude is only the evidence of ignorance. And knowledge puffs up. We're to be loving and to build up. And the person who really knows the truth is, is just conscious of how much they actually don't know. Paul says this in verse 3. 
If anyone loves God, he is known by God. I love that verse. I love that verse because what Paul is saying is this. It's not what you know that's important. It's who knows you that's important. It's not what you know, but that you are known by God that is important. What really matters? What I think I know or to know that I'm known by God. See, we should be people who are seeking to grow in the confidence that they are known by God. Not puffing up in what we know. You, you see this so much in the church, right? We puff up on schools of theology. People's heads swell. They want to argue about theology. They want to argue about this. And I, I really think as I consider this verse, we should be seeking not to be people that know, but to be people who are known by God. To be known by God. And there is incredible freedom in understanding that you are known by God. There is freedom in that understanding. That understanding sets you free from the legalisms of religious knowledge. When you are known by God, it allows you to extend grace to others on non-essential issues. When you are known by God, it gives you freedom from the rigid nature of religion and it allows you to love God and enjoy your relationship with him and it allows you to love others and enjoy your relationship with them. Man, it's not about what you know. It's about being known by God. And you know, it's, it's all too possible to grow in knowledge even to grow in knowledge of the word and yet not grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you understand the difference? I can grow in head knowledge of the word and not grow in heart knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And the challenge is to grow in grace, to grow in your relationship with God, to grow in your relationship with the heavenly father, not just to know, but to be known. And Paul said this, the test is love. I mean, we've all been around those older believers, man. They, you know, I think they nod on a pew when they were young or something. They've been immersed in Jesus their whole lives. And there's a grace about them. You ever get around believers like that? There is a grace about them. And they're not dividing lines and drawing things in black and white. They just, they love Jesus and it's clear and it shines through their lives and they're not going to divide over things that don't matter. The test is love. Knowledge and love must go together. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 that we're to, we speak truth in love. This has been said, and I like it. Truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. You know, knowledge is power. What you know makes you powerful versus, you know, people who maybe don't know. But what you know is to be used in love, Paul says. Love must always be 
or knowledge must be controlled by love in a sense and vice versa. Your love must be controlled by knowledge. And those who had knowledge about idols who could say, it's not real. It's a piece of stone. It doesn't matter that it's been offered. The meat hasn't changed. I'm going to eat it. It's a good deal. Those who had that kind of knowledge about idols were not building up, not edifying others, but rather um, they were puffing themselves up, saying, oh, we're so mature. We know so much more. And Paul's concern was that those with with a good understanding of this particular issue would rather than puff up, learn to help others grow. Rather than puff up in knowledge, get involved with helping others grow. You know, I've noticed this in churches over the years that no one puffs up more than those who aren't involved in anything. I mean, if you are not involved in serving and helping people, you will puff up, man. I'm telling you, you will. No one puffs up more than those who aren't involved in helping others grow. I mean, you get involved with others and you'll find something. Life's messy. Life is messy, man. Life without Jesus and sin makes a mess of your life and people need grace. They don't need you stuffing your knowledge in their face. They need you to love them with knowledge and to walk them in discipleship towards Jesus Christ. Amen? You get involved with others. Man, if your head is puffing up, if you're puffing up in knowledge, you need to take that inward check and say, man, where am I serving? Where am I serving those who are younger in the faith? So Paul says this in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul gives this quick teaching to explain and to remind the church that there is one God. That idols have no real existence. That food offered to them is meaningless because false gods sustain nothing. There is one God who sustains all things and holds the universe in his hands and to whom we belong and who sustains us. Our Father who is in heaven. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You know, some people have the false idea that strong Christians are Christians who live by rules and who live by regulations and who get offended when they see others act in freedom in their relationship with Christ. That is actually not the case as we're going to see here. It is actually the weak Christians who must have that sense of security from law, from legalism, from rules. It's actually weak Christians who are afraid to act in their freedom in Christ. 
It's weak Christians who are prone to judge. It is weak Christians who are prone to criticize other believers and stumble over what they do. You know, I remember uh, when I was a young lad and I went to Bible school. I was 19 or 20. And, uh, you know, all the rage at Bible school was our floor hockey league. And uh, it's where these pent-up young males at Bible college worked out their aggression. And uh, you guys know me, I'm a bit of a hockey nut. And so I was in there like a dirty shirt. And um, I remember as a freshman, I played on our team and there was a guy on my team that I looked up to. Um, he was a senior and he loved the Lord and he had a relationship with God that I aspired to. I thought, I, I want to mature and grow and be like that man. And I remember... Um, playing hockey that one day he snapped. Like, he snapped. And, uh, I mean, he, he left the game. Yeah, he might have been tossed out of the game. He left the building. And, and I thought, boy, I, I just had such high expectations for you. I looked up to you. You, you were someone who I saw as spiritual. And I, and I just remember having these thoughts. And then, then I remember that I became... A senior, and someone had the same thought about me, and then they watched me snap, probably more than once. And uh, I remember hearing that come back to me. Oh, oh, I looked up to you. I thought you were spiritual. And, you know, it was in the weakness of my faith as a young guy that I was, I, I, I wanted to criticize someone that I saw as stronger in the faith and stumbled over what I saw in their life. And it wasn't an issue of salvation or anything serious. The guy stopped playing hockey. That happens. And, you know, it's weak Christians who are prone to judge and to criticize stronger believers and stumble over what they do. And it makes it challenging for someone who is more mature in the faith to minister to others. You know, the human tendency in such a situation is to let the one who is more mature or stronger, if that's the word we want to use. Paul's using the word stronger and weaker here. You'll see them in the text. Uh, the human tendency is for the, the one who is stronger in the faith to, to let their knowledge to ca cause them to swell in the head. But the Christ-centered response is to love, to learn to build up the less mature believer, to build up the one who is weaker, the brother or sister in their faith. And the role of someone who is weaker in the faith should be this, to not let legalism allow them to be offended so easily. You know, Christians are offended so easy. We, we, we just get offended so easy. And when we love one another, when we fellowship with one another, we should be able to take the hand of another believer and say, let's walk towards Jesus Christ together. The stronger should be able to take the hand uh, of the, the weaker. And the weaker should be able to take the hand of the stronger. 
And we should say, we're going towards Jesus. Let's walk through this together. You know, look, (laughs) there's enough big heads in church already. We need Jesus to enlarge our hearts. I don't want a big head. I want an enlarged heart. I don't want our church to be a big-headed church. I want us to have hearts. Hearts for one another and hearts for Jesus Christ and hearts for the lost. Some Christians don't grow. They just swell. We want to be those that grow. (laughs) Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. I like that line, food will not commend us to God. You know, it's important for us to remember that as believers because we live in a culture that is crazy over that. I'm gluten-free, I'm this, I'm that, I'm paleo, I'm this, blah, 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 blah. What? Come on, like seriously. You think you draw nearer to God by what you eat? Paul says food does not commend you to God. That word that we translate commend in the, in the Greek is this word, parastame. It means to stand near or to be at hand. Food, Paul says this, food does not make you stand nearer to God. In the Greek language, when that word para, so this is the word parastame, to stand near God, to stand near, to be near God. When that, that uh, para is used as a preposition for a noun or for a pronoun in the Greek language, it means to put something beside. Here's where it translates into the English language. Here's an example. Paramedic, we say. That means you have medical aid beside you. Someone is there to take care of you, that is drawn near to you. Those who are weak in conscience, uh, Paul says, make the mistake when they think that they can draw near to God based on what they eat or what they don't eat. That is a pagan concept. That is a a pagan concept that Paul is confronting here in the church. Um, We do not draw near to God based on diet. Rather, we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God draws near to us, the scripture says. Heaven came down. Jesus came down. Jesus promised, an upside down page, that he would send the Holy Spirit to us, who is called the counselor, the helper, and his Greek name as the counselor, the helper, is the paraclete. The helper who comes beside you. Look at, it's a beautiful picture what Paul's saying. You don't put something in you and then draw near to you. God, God rather sends a spirit and God draws near to you. God draws near to me and to you to be known by God. Now that said, I mean, of course, the scripture tells us draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But that's not about diet. 
That's about submitting yourselves to God, who James says opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And so although meat is not, that is offered to an idol is no threat to God, though it may not affect you personally, you and I need to be aware of something, Paul says. It may affect others around you. Check it out, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? So, though you know uh, that your relationship with God is no better or no worse by eating meat that was offered to an, an idol, your knowledge, Paul says, must be tempered. It must yield to, to a principle that is higher. That of love. So the instruction is, be mindful of those who are weak and immature in their faith in your decisions. And whatever you do, eat meat. I mentioned drinking alcohol earlier. I would say the spending of your money, the possessions that you own, whatever it is, mindful of others. You know, people can be weak or, or immature in their faith for a number of reasons. Of course, they could be a new believer. So just natural, they don't pack the same knowledge that you, you have because they've only known Jesus for a short time. Maybe they've not had the opportunity to grow. Maybe they've never been in a place where they've had discipleship or been taught the word of God. Maybe they've been in a context where uh, they've been taught legalisms and laws and rules and that's how they're to relate to God. Maybe they've simply refused to grow by ignoring their Bible, by, you know, ignoring the fellowship of believers. Maybe, and I think this is a real thing, that some Christians are just afraid of freedom. You know, afraid of freedom. You know, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. That's what the scripture says. Be free. Be free. And we must always remember that, when, that we, we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the beauties of that is this. As we live for Jesus, we, we are actually not fighting to get victory. The scripture teaches us that we are fighting from the place of victory already. And that needs to, our thinking needs to adjust accordingly. We fight from a position of victory. And it's easy to make our decisions as believers out of fear of defeat rather than from the position of a victor. That concept's totally foreign, I would say, to the world, and it's foreign to lots of Christians. Christians are hypersensitive about issues of the conscience. Super hypersensitive. There's, a, there's fear of failure. I want to tell you something. God is not worried about your failure. 
That should free you. God is not worried about your failure. You know what? Just take a deep breath this morning. Jesus loves you. It'll change your life. It's radical. It's a radical concept. Jesus loves you, my friends. God was never counting on you as his contingency plan. He has you in his hand. The scripture says none can be snatched from the hand of Christ. He's purchased you with his blood. Look, when the Lord picked you for his team, he knew what he was getting involved in. He knew what he was getting involved in. He knew what he was drafting. You should not be afraid to fail as you seek to serve Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll tell you this. I'll give you a guarantee. One thing. You will fail. You will fail yourself and you will fail those around you. You will fail. You want to know what's the difference between those who are godly men and women and those who are not? The godly, when they fail, they get back up and they get back in the game. Solomon said, though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. He gets back up. And you know, you could, you could think of the great heroes of the faith. We could go through, I mean, we could, we could just think of some of our favorite Bible ones like David and Peter. Did they fail? You better bet, you better believe they failed. They, they, they failed unbelievably. Are they remembered for their failure? Yeah, we remember their failures, but what do we remember about them? They got back up and they got in the game and they served Jesus Christ. And God took their failure and he worked in the midst of it and he glorified himself. We don't fight for victory. We fight from the position of victory. And for those that are strong in faith, it's important to remember that the conscience of the less mature believer can be easily offended, can be easily wounded, can be easily defiled. So those that are stronger in faith must learn to yield to the weaker one. And it's an act of love to do so. You know, it might not harm you to eat meat, but it might stumble a brother. And so you make your decision accordingly. Those who are weaker must learn, you know, be true to your conscience. Be true to your conscience no matter what you see other people doing, no matter what you see other Christians doing. To yourself and to God be true. And when, you know, you know, back to the stronger believer, when the, when the stronger believer yields to the weaker believer, you, you make that decision in order to help that person mature. It's not pampering. It's not coddling. It's a loving act to say, let me help you mature or to lay down your right. Look what he says in verse 11 here. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Look, we're free in Christ. We are free. 
But we must make sure that we practice our freedom tempered with love. With those who are younger and less mature in faith in mind, we must practice our freedom with the understanding that we want to be cautious, that we don't tempt someone who is weaker in the faith to run ahead of the convictions of their own conscience. And where knowledge is tempered by love, something beautiful happens. Fellowship happens. When knowledge is tempered by love, the strong Christian will have ministry to the weak and the weak Christian will grow and become a strong Christian. You know, I just think this, the reality is this. There's no point sometimes in arguing whether something is right or wrong. The question is actually this. How, this will, how will this affect my brother and sister in Christ? Not right or wrong. Not always black and white. Sometimes it's how will it affect those who are trying to serve Jesus Christ around me? That's my litmus test. And once again, Paul lifts the debate really to the highest level by showing um, that Jesus Christ's death, the cross, is relevant to this discussion. That the death of Jesus Christ is, is totally pertinent in resolving moral and spiritual issues. Look at verse 11 again. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. We sang this morning, you're calling us to the cross. And that's been the message of Paul all the way out throughout 1 Corinthians. The cross is the controlling factor. The cross is to be at the center of our lives. We are to express the same love to our brothers and sisters that was expressed to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what matters. The cross. Your Christ died for your brother, and so we make our decisions accordingly. Jesus said this, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what God calls us to in the church, to lay down our lives for one another. You know, I'm so, I'm so thankful for this church. I love this church. You guys are awesome. I, I am thankful that we get to serve one another. We get to serve Jesus. I'm thankful for the fellowship that we share. You know, I'm thankful for the time we had at the park last week and worshiped God and had a barbecue and baptized some people. And it's important that we remember that our fellowship, the fellowship that God has brought us into with himself and with each other, uh, bears a responsibility for us. It bears a responsibility. And the bottom line for Paul was this. If it makes my brother stumble, then I don't want any part of it. If, it, if food makes my brother stumble, he says, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Hey, man, may we not have swelled heads but enlarged hearts for one another and for God. Let's pray this morning.
Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys up here. Why don't you guys stand with me while they're coming up before I start praying. We're going to sing your grace is enough. And uh, hey, let's pray. God, we love you this morning. We pray, God, that you would just give, that you'd make us a church with enlarged hearts. God, that we would love you more and that we'd love one another more. God, I pray for those who are strong in their faith, Lord. Known you for a long time, know lots of things about you. God, I pray that they would not be in that place of just accumulating knowledge but that they'd seek to be known by you. Not just know about you, but to be known by you. And that you would increasingly bring freedom in their lives as they know you. Lord, I pray for those that are weak in their faith this morning. God, we pray for maturity in their lives. We pray, God, that those that are stronger would come alongside of them and walk with them. We pray, God, that that each of us would be true to the things that are in our conscience before you and that we would honor you. We thank you, Jesus, that you're a living God and not an idol. You're a living God who comes beside us, walks with us, and draws us to yourself. And so, Jesus, this morning, uh, we don't resist you. We don't resist one another. We, uh, we just, before you, declare our love for each other, and we declare our love for you. And God, I pray your blessing upon each one this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.